0: Medical knowledge 20 years ago was only
1: available to the doctors who could go to the medical libraries, now it's available to everyone. Hello fellow Homo today it is part two of our conversation with the internationally recognised paediatric neurologist and researcher from Glasgow University, Samir Suberi. Today's episode with Samir is about the reclassifications or renaming of epilepsy syndromes in young children, which is those up to about the age of two. I can imagine some people's response, I know more renaming, right? But Samir actually explains to us the very, very good reasons why this has been done with us, uh, people with epilepsy and families, etc. with us in mind. In our chat with Samir, you will see a few terms highlighted. Remember that you can find these terms described at epilepsysparks.com slash glossary, and if you'd like to learn more about Samir, make sure that you check him out at toryrobinson.com slash epilepsy hyphen sparks hyphen insights slash Samir hyphen suberi. I'm a consultant paediatric neurologist at the Royal Hospital
0: for Children in Glasgow in Scotland in the United Kingdom and I'm also an honorary professor at the University of Glasgow and my main clinical and research interests are in uh, childhood epilepsy, uh, in neurogenetics and I also see children with uh, sleep disorders and, and uh, uh, and I'm also the on neurologist for the Children's Hospital.
1: Could you please tell us about your work with the ILAE or the International League Against Epilepsy and specifically your work um, with the task force which um, has been working on the ILAE uh, new classifications of epilepsy syndromes. Yes so
0: I've been involved with International League Against Epilepsy in their classification uh, commission and terminology commission for, for many years since uh, since 2009 Whoa. and I was the, <laughs> the chair of the commission uh, between 2014, um, 2013 and 2017, which ended up with the 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 the, the new classification of, of the epilepsies and seizure types. So that was uh, that was a privilege to chair that um, the commission at that time. And then over the last few years, I've been working uh, with lots of colleagues on the epilepsy syndromes. Now, many of you will know uh, what epilepsy syndromes are. Um, Basically, they're the highest level of classification of the epilepsies and that's what we always strive to do so that we can um, tell people, uh, you know, exactly what the nature of their epilepsy is, what the future will hold for them. But the International League Against Epilepsy had recognised epilepsy syndromes in the past but had never actually had a group um, classifying them in great detail and producing um, an International League-endorsed description of these epilepsy syndromes. So the um, task force was led by Elaine Wirral from the United States and Paolo Tinuper from Italy, um, and they basically broke up uh, us into different groups, um, looking at... um, Uh, epilepsy syndromes in neonates and infants, which was one group which I was involved with, largely, but I also had input into the other groups as well, and then in children, and then in adults, and what we call variable age onset epilepsies, and then there was another task force looking at what we call the uh, genetic generalized epilepsies. So that's a common group of epilepsies such as childhood absence epilepsy, juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, generalized tonic-clonic seizures alone and juvenile absence epilepsy that are often linked together. And they're very common. So we, I think it was felt that they needed their own paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, So, anyway, these these task groups worked for several years, four years. Gosh, that's a while. Uh, It's a long time, and many people working on this, looking at the literature um, uh, and describing each uh, different syndromes within those age groups. And as I said, I was involved in the the task force looking at the neonates and infants. What we did was look at the most common epilepsy syndromes and define those. We In our paper, we have produced a detailed description of all those syndromes, what people should look after. And also we produced what I think are really nice tables, which give you the mandatory features for each syndrome, any exclusionary features, and also some what are called alerts for each syndrome. So if you see these features, it makes you think, oh, well... Could this be the syndrome? Is it really that? So little diagnostic clues for people. And also, because the International League Against Epilepsy is really for everyone in the whole world, it's not for people in high-resource countries, we've looked at how you can diagnose these syndromes in parts of the world where you may not have easy access to do EEG or MRI scans or, or gene testing. Oh,
1: that's brilliant. Which,
0: in reality, most people with epilepsy don't have access to these things. So uh, how can someone in a, in a low- and middle-income country make a diagnosis of one of these syndromes? Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we've done in these syndromes is we've changed some of the names. We've hopefully made the language Uh, much more easily accessible. I think that's really important because medical knowledge 20 years ago was only available to the doctors who could go to the medical libraries, the big expensive textbooks. Now it's available to everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone can get everything. Uh, And, you know, that's quite natural that anyone with any condition or you've got a child or a relative with a condition or a friend, you would want to learn about that. Uh, So the language we use must be common between people affected by the condition and people managing and treating the condition.
1: It's so lovely you say that because it's a really common uh, almost obstacle I think to learning about one's own disease or or, or the disease of your child or loved one is that what are the like these words have too many flipping syllables in them mate what does this mean you know so to have something that's easier to actually understand and learn is is it's lovely as a patient to know that that is being considered and actually implemented from the perspective of the,
0: of the clinician. So simple things like words like idiopathic and cryptogenic that no one really knows what they mean. So if you're really ma- meaning that it's unknown, you say it's unknown. I don't know the cause. Right. You know, <laughs> So you say it's unknown and then you admit to the patient, well sorry, I don't know the cause of your epilepsy, but I'm going to... but also that means that you're thinking I'm gonna keep looking. Right. It doesn't mean we've given up on you. It means it's unknown at the moment and I've I've done maybe I've done all the investigations, but in a year's time I may be able to do more. I think again, you know, I'm always um, you know, actively considering what the cause is so that, you know, that in case that might potentially give you a better treatment. So, so it's, the language also helps the management, uh, and also being a bit more honest about things. So there are a lot of epilepsies in the past that have been called benign, you know. And when you use the term benign, people think, oh, it's fine then; it's not going to cause any problems. It's you know, it's uh, it's something that's safe and nice. But actually, when you look at some of these epilepsies with the term benign on them, they can be associated with. Uh, um, seizures that for the individual are really quite frightening right you know when they experience them uh, and also for the family when they observe the seizures they're quite frightening as well and also they may be associated with other other uh, other conditions like you know specific uh, learning problems uh, etc so they're
1: not necessarily benign for that person and also it makes me think of skin cancer because I always think of skin you know you have an abnormal growth which is tested oh it's benign don't worry I never really associated it with epilepsies before or any other sort of condition there are lots of epilepsy syndromes
0: which have the term benign in front of them uh, which isn't always appropriate so instead of that um, we're using other terms like self-limited which means actually this epilepsy you will grow out of it nice okay uh it does not mean that it won't cause you problems when it's
1: there and also potentially if it causes you problems when you're little even if you grow out of it that can still affect you as an adult because of the way it's impacted your life as a child right
0: yeah absolutely absolutely those experiences that you've had maybe the consequences of the epilepsy as a young might might impact on you later on in life so that's really important so the, the the epilepsy syndromes papers uh, I think are quite a landmark for the International League Against Epilepsy. Uh, there is one paper that basically describes the methodology um, uh, and Elaine Wirrell is the first author of that paper and she describes exactly how we looked at these uh, syndromes and the task force is... The way the, these papers are developed, the International League has a group of uh, people interested in a field, will then look in detail at it, we'll discuss, we'll, we'll, we'll prepare papers, we'll give lectures, we'll give talks, and in those we'll get feedback from the epilepsy community, uh, and then after maybe a year or two of that, then they will write a paper, which is uh, a proposal paper, that is then put um, submitted to Epilepsia, the main epilepsy journal. Uh, It is reviewed by many reviewers and also the same paper goes online. And then all the epilepsy community, including patient advocacy groups, medical organisations, are encouraged to comment on the paper. Uh, So you can get hundreds and hundreds of comments.
1: I've seen some of them. It's crazy. It goes on for infinity, almost. But it's
0: great because then you, you look at those comments and then what happens is it goes back to another task force who might include some of the people in the first task force who will then look at that first paper and then modify it with taking into account what the epilepsy community has said. So you've gone through a really rigorous process to get what's called a position paper for the International League. So, So in that way, because you've gone through this complex process of lots of engagement with the community and with uh, clinicians you can hopefully get something at the end that is acceptable now any scientific paper is not acceptable to everyone there will always be some people who say well i i like that term why have you got rid of it you know i understand that but um, uh, and there's uh, some people say why are you changing the classifications of I mean, you know why does the international league against
1: epilepsy do this And I think they have
0: to, science is constantly changing.
1: There is a reason behind it. And it's because we are openly being contradicted by new evidence.
0: New evidence and new attitudes. And yes, we are talking about the fact that uh, now everyone in the world has access to information, data. So you need to make your language accessible to everyone. So that's, that's a really important reason to think about classifications. Also, the way we treat epilepsy is changing so we've moved into the era of precision therapies uh, which are linked to the underlying etiology so we're now defining syndromes by their etiology by their cause. So in the past epilepsy syndromes were diagnosed by the pattern of seizures, the age of onset, um, the EEG features, maybe other problems that the child or uh, adult had and we still do that but we also understand that there are epilepsy syndromes that have first been identified by someone doing a gene test and saying, this patient has a variant in the gene, for example, CDKL5 gene. And then, then they look at all the people with CDKL5 variants and they say, oh, actually, their epilepsy looks really similar and their clinical picture looks very similar and how they develop over time looks similar. So that can become an etiology a cause-defined syndrome. Uh, And so now that's a new group of syndromes that have been brought into this classification. And we hope that with our understanding of the knowledge of the epilepsies, this list is going to get longer. Yeah. And that's the next stage. So, uh, you know, I said I'd been involved in this classification work since 2009. (laughs) So Professor Helen Cross is the the... President of the International League asked uh, um, if I would join another task force, which is being led by one of my good friends and colleagues, Ingrid Sheffer from Australia, which is going to be looking at these uh, etiology-defined syndromes in the era of precision medicine and seeing if we can define more of those. So we can find more targets for specific treatments in epilepsy?
1: Just for people who are like, oh my goodness, like this is so much information already. How can we almost embrace more? Yes, as, as we were actually speaking about um, before we started recording, the more we learn, the more we realise we don't know. And that can be intimidating. But it also gives us, as you were saying, a much greater opportunity for precision medicine for, and for improving the quality of life of the people affected by these epilepsies and the people surrounding them and loving them. And so... I think just bring on the research and um, bring on the better care. And that is what the future holds for us.
0: I hope so.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Samir. It's been an absolute pleasure again. (laughs)
0: Thank you very much, Tori. Thank you.
1: If you'd like to connect, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram. And I'd love to hear from you if you have any thoughts about today's show. Please subscribe to Epilepsy Sparks Insights on your podcast app so that you will never miss the weekly episode. I'm Tori Robinson. Thanks for listening.